Morning. Welcome to the National Capital Bible Church. Before we do anything, let's pause for a moment of silence, utilizing 1 John 1 9, so that we can get back into fellowship with God. So let's bow our heads and then I'll open in prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this opportunity for us to assemble together as a community of believers. We know that this is important for us as Christians so that we can draw from your word, we can be empowered by God the Holy Spirit, and we could be encouraged by the scriptures. We know that this is critical in this day and age. So we're grateful that we have this privilege that's ours because of Christ. We ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The call to worship this morning is taken from Psalms 121. But before we look into Psalms 121, may I, can I remind you all to please keep Vanessa's sister in much prayer because of um, apparently her husband, uh, Gabe, had passed away recently. And so you probably received that in the email. So kindly remember Teal and her family during this time of loss. I, I've never had the opportunity to know them, so I'm not sure of their spiritual status, but just the same. It is painful. Oh, they are believers? Okay, well, we can rejoice then. They're believers. But you just never know when you lose someone, there's still that time of mourning. We want to be sensitive to that. We learn that from the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus found out that Lazarus was sick, he used that as an opportunity to teach his disciples that no, this will not result in death. But just the same, he used that as an opportunity to teach that there's a time for shedding tears. And so, let's follow suit. So, if you do see any of the family members, or if you know them personally, I would even encourage you, in time, maybe in the next week or so, to reach out to them and extend your condolences. So now, Psalms 121 says the following. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Another word for slumber is sleep. not going to fall asleep while on his watch. Behold, verse 4. He who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The idea of being a shade is that, you know, it's it gets hot. And so you usually will go under a tree or go in your house because of the heat. We don't we tend not to like the heat or the sun rays unless you are at the beach trying to get a tan or something along those lines. The the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by the day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. 
He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in. From this time forth and even forevermore. I'd like to highlight a few things taken from this passage here. So if you'll just follow along with me as I point them out. I like looking at the passages of Scripture, whatever it is that we're looking at, and see if I can find a key doctrine in the verse or the verses or the passages that we're looking at. So from Psalms 121, I find in verse, this is not in any kind of order, I just jotted these down this morning, this idea of God promising his people in the context it's referring to Israel, but by principle of continuity, because Israel was his people, by continuity that applies to us as well because we're believers. I find in verse 7 um, the idea of protection. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. There's safety there. Divine protection. Look at, for example, another one in verse 3. I get the sense of divine guidance. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He will keep, he who keeps you will not sleep or slumber. So this guidance, I find this in verse 3 of Psalms 121. We also see his presence. You know what presence is? What you get in Christmas, right? No, it's his presence, his being there by your side. You get this from verse 3, or I'm sorry, verse 5. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. So he's there by your side. We talk, we're talking about his divine presence. Again, he's your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. So that speaks of his presence. He can't be by your right hand if he's not there. So we see all of this just contained in Psalms 121. So lastly, before we lift our voices to God, I know we've We've had a grueling week or a challenging week, some of us. But when we talk about a call to worship, please think about what that means. It's a call to the assembly to come back and refocus and to get ready for sound doctrine, to get ready for hearing God through his word. So we're going to do that after we sing some songs. Bill? Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Therefore, we conclude 
that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. The simplicity of the gospel, again, is something that we must be comfortable with so that we can get the word out and share to those that we love and care for so that they too can have life everlasting. So I've committed those to memory several years ago because it would always bother me when I've all, when I hear of people passing away and I don't know where people stand. Is there really anything more important than Eternity, if you think about it. What happens after this life? We're so fixated on the things, the details of life, that we sometimes forget that there's more to life than what we see with our eyes. So please, bear with me every Sunday as I share those verses. I'm hoping it will take root so that when you are out there, and you're wondering what you can share, one of those verses will pop and you can share the gospel so that they too may have life everlasting. Okay, here's the direction today. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians, again, chapter 1, but this time I'm going to review sanctification because I'm going to uh, adjust it just a little bit because with all the questions that, that I received last week, I, real, I realized that maybe, just maybe, I need to cover it once again because the questions relate to the baptism of the Spirit, conjoining the believer with those in the universal church as well as with one another and making a difference, showing the difference between how God sanctifies the believer and how we sanctify ourselves. Think about that. Who does the sanctification? Is it God or us? It depends. That's why I want to take this through. Because it's actually a two-pronged effect. It's God and you. In fact, how many sanctifications are there? It's quiet now. There is three. Did you know that? There's three phases of salvation, correct? There's also three aspects or three phases of sanctification. So let me give you a heads up. I wrote it down here. Phase one, sanctification, refers to positional sanctification. Phase two, sanctification, refers to progressive sanctification. Phase three, sanctification, refers to ultimate sanctification. Does that make sense? So you've got positional sanctification, progressive sanctification, ultimate sanctification. If we're not clear on those, then we may blur one and two, and thus being a little confused on the nuances found in scripture for for example when we when i said last week that we are conjoined with one another i meant it you're connected to the person next to you spiritually speaking don't worry about the universal church you are all connected to one another this is why the scripture re- 
says repeatedly, exhort one another, do not forsake the assembling of saints. Why? Because we need each other. The local church needs believers together. That's the only way that we can steer one another in love, encouragement, and Bible doctrine. You can't do that when you're separated. You can't do that when you're home. You can't do that when you're just listening online. Now, am I suggesting that you can't listen online? No, of course not. But I'm saying if that's all you're about, listening online, then you're missing out on the assembling of the saints, the benefits that come with assembling together. There's a dynamics that's lost when you're not here with the local family of God. Some people don't have that luxury of being here. And so the next best thing is to listen online. In fact, my church in California is doing that right now. They're there listening online. Their entire church service is specifically online. We can't do anything because I'm here face-to-face with you. But that's been the plan for the last year and a half, almost two years. They have been faithfully gathering together because they can't get the teaching anywhere else. Not similar to what we're doing as a local church. So now, I'm going to cover sanctification. We're going to look again at the local church. And I'm going to ask you some questions with regards to the supernatural events from Paul. You don't have to answer if you're not comfortable. But you may, just because you might have the answer. So let's look at what we got here. The doctrine of sanctification. Let's see. Is this 39? Okay, this is where we left off last week. So you'll understand why we're going through this again. We left off last Sunday with the community of believers. Okay, let me just read it for the sake of the recording now that it's on the screen. The doctrine of sanctification emphasizes that sanctification is a process by which the believers grow in what? Holiness and conformity to Christ Jesus. But it is not a condition for salvation. And I'd hit nine points up to this point. where There's one through nine, and they're all there. You can look at them, well, you can listen to them online, one through nine. The body of Christ, the church, plays a significant role in the process of sanctification as believers are called, listen to this, to encourage, exhort, and hold one another accountable in their pursuit of holiness. You find this in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider one another. One another is you, me, the person next to you. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and what? Good works. That can only take place when we're assembled together. You can't do that when you're home. You can't do that when you're online. Again, Nothing against online, but the idea there is that when you are faithfully assembling together, if that's possible, then that's the best way where we can stir up love and good works with one another. It's harder to do that when you're online. It's easier to do when you see each other, lock eyes and can see each other. Body language. So that's number nine, and then... 
I'll just go to this. I'll just move now to this is where we will look. Remember, we talked about this a few weeks ago. An apostle. What is an apostle versus a disciple? Well, we pointed out that the apostle versus a disciple, that basically the differences lie in their role and their authority. The second paragraph is what's key. It lies in their roles and authority. The apostles were specifically chosen by Christ and commissioned by Jesus to spread his message. While disciples are followers and students of the teachings, apostles hold a more authoritative role in establishing and leading Christian communities. While disciples typically focus on learning and internalizing the teachings to grow in their faith. Remember John 6? Many of them walked with Jesus no more. Why? Because the teachings were hard. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. You remember that? And they left him because they couldn't understand that Jesus was talking spirit. You find that in John 6. What happens after many, after many of them walk with him no more? He turns to his twelve. And what does he say to his twelve? Do you guys want to leave too? So I had pointed out that because he's, he spoke to his twelve, that means we can get to the point in our personal lives where it gets too difficult. Whatever it may be, we just give up. Remember John, in John 6, um, in fact, let's turn there. We won't go through it all, but just I want you to see so you can mark it in your Bibles so that you know that I'm not fabricating this. John 6, 60, I'm going to hit from 60 and I'm going to jump and hopscotch around so that you can see the context. John 6, 60 says, Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. The saying was, eat my flesh, drink my blood, prior to 60. This is a hard saying. When Jesus knew in himself, omniscience, God the Son at work, John 6, 61, he knew that his disciples complained about this. He said to them, does this offend you? Does this really bother you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? What's that talking about? You ever thought, think about that? He goes from John 6, 61, does this offend you? Are you having difficulty with this teaching? Well then, 62, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? Basically, he's saying, look, if you can't take this teaching, eat my flesh, drink my blood, then oh, you're going to have a hard time when I start talking about ascending to the heaven. You're going to have difficulty with that. You have problem eating my flesh, drinking my blood, then you're going to have a deuce of a time when I go and ascend before my father. So he's basically saying, look, it's going to get progressively worse. If you're having difficulty with eat my flesh, drink my blood, well, wait till I go to heaven. You're going to have a hard time with that. So in verse 62, verse 63, we, we pointed out, I pointed out that it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But notice in verse 64, there are some of you who do not, what? Believe. 
some of you do not believe. So the many of his disciples, when they heard this and they walked walked with him no more, Jesus 64 knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. He said, therefore, I have said to you, 65, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. Now here's here's where it shifts. 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. So what did we conclude with verse 66? From that time, many of his disciples walked with him no more. What did Jesus say in the preceding verses about the many? Some of the many did not, did not believe. But some of the many did. Please notice. He didn't say all of the disciples who left did not believe. He said some. Very important to notice what's there. Some of those who left did not believe and some did believe. That's important to see. Some of the many who left believed. Some of the many who left did not believe. I didn't bring that out last time. I don't believe. So that's 66. And then 67. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? The point there is many of the disciples walk with him no more. Some of them believed, some of them did not believe. Then he turns to his elite, those who he was mentoring for three and a half years. And he says, do you want to leave also? And I said, sometimes even the best of the best of the best Hardcore studying doctrine every time they have a chance and an opportunity. They can throw their hands up and say, you know what? I don't even know if this works. I don't want to study anymore because I'm getting hit with challenges. I'm getting hit with all sorts of things and it's not working. Count it all joy? Yeah, right. It's not working. God causes all things to work together for good? Not in my situation. You ever been in a situation like that? where you know all this doctrine, but it doesn't seem to be working in the situation that you're in. So he looks at his disciples who are there, the twelve, and then he looks at the many who left, and he says, some of them do not believe, and we can infer based on the words of Christ, many of them did. He didn't say all of them did not believe. Some of them did not believe. So some of the believers left, then he turns to his twelve, who are the elite, the best of the best of the best. And he says, do you guys want to leave too like them? So believers left. Some of the believers left. Some of them were not even believers. Then those who were believers and disciples who became apostles were there and he looked them in the eyes and he said, what's up with you guys? You ready to leave too? What did Peter say? And he said, Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ. That word know is not an acquaintance kind of know. It's a really deep sense of the word where he knew 
Peter knew, they knew Christ intimately. It's a, a familiar, more than just knowledge, academic knowledge. He knew them, uh, they knew him in a way that they were fully persuaded. In what? That you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's why they wanted to stay. Even though they had difficulty and these, they saw the many leave, I'm sure they were probably saying to themselves, well, guy, they all left too. Um, what are we going to do? The reason why they stuck with Christ is because of what Peter said here. So if you want staying power, please notice what Peter says, his answer. First of all, he said, <clears throat> you have the words of eternal life. We have come to be believe and know that what? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. What does that mean in the context of John? Turn to John 20 and then we'll go past this. Go on with Corinthians. Turn to John 20. John 20, 30 and 31. The purpose statement of John. Remember that? Truly Jesus did many other Signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, the eight signs that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his, what? In his name. You may have purpose and a sense of direction in his name. That's that conjoining. That's the idea of the, the whole idea of sanctification, phase one or two. One. We're going to look at that a little bit more in just a moment. Let's, let's move forward now. So we talked about apostle versus disciple. Now what's next? We talked about how the apostle was through the will of God. Do you remember that? Let's exercise our memory banks. Well, remember, there were some key observations with regards to Paul's calling. It was supernatural in three ways. Acts 9, 1 to 19. It was a historical event. It shows that he was dramatically chosen by God despite persecuting who? Christians or believers. But let me ask you something. What are the supernatural three ways? Taken from Acts 9, 1 through 19. What are the three supernatural ways taken from Acts 9, 1 through 19? We know it's a historical event. What was supernatural about it though? Light, okay. The light. Voice. Hmm? Blindness. Okay, lights. Voice. Blindness. Well, 
Uh, Bill, can you read Matthew 3.17? Okay, very good. Who's speaking there? God the Father. God the Father. God the Father's voice was coming from where? From heaven. So now in Acts 9, whose voice was coming from where? In Acts 9, whose voice was speaking? Jesus. And where was that voice coming from? So you have God the Father's voice booming down towards Jesus and God the Son's voice booming down. This time it's towards who? Paul. Saul, who was later on called Paul. So that's the first supernatural thing. We also have the light that was shown from above. We also see the immediate transformation of a killer. Paul was a killer. Remember? There's an immediate transformation of Saul from a persecutor to a follower of Christ. Those are miraculous, in my opinion. Those are supernatural. You have the booming voice from God the Son coming from up here. Because initially, where was Jesus Christ? He's on earth, roaming around. But now he's up there, speaking to who? Paul. And where's his voice? Not coming from this, not horizontally, it's coming from up there. So Jesus is speaking up from heaven now, booming his voice downwards, and then there's a bright, how many lumen light, booming down, so that he could not see, and he lost his sight, and he was later on transformed into a follower of Christ. So those are the three supernatural things that occurred in Acts 9. So please never forget that. This is important to know. Why? Because when you go through hardship and you catalog what God has done in the lives of individuals, you'll see that the God who worked in the lives of Saul, Paul, Peter, and so on, is able to come through with with surety so that when you go through hardship, you can default back and say, well, if God worked through Paul the way that he did in Acts 9, he can certainly help me in my life, my situation. If he helped during this time, he converted this person from a loser, a killer, to now a follower of Christ, he can certainly help me with my situation. Because sometimes we overlook these little things and we say, well, yeah, a bright light shone shone down on him. Yes, Jesus was speaking to him, but let's put things in its proper perspective. It came from up there. He wasn't there on the side. He wasn't there on the end of the street. He was up there from heaven. A light was shown. His voice came. So let's pay attention to every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God because that helps us have a healthy understanding of God and how he operates, how he works. Okay? How about in Galatians 1.15? What was the supernatural event here? He was, he was set apart, right? From his mother's womb. How many of you can say that about 
your life. We can't, right? So only Paul, who was able to demonstrate his apostleship, defend his apostleship, especially in other letters of the Bible, was able to use this and say, this is how I became an apostle. This is how I became a representative of God. This is why you can listen to me. This is why I have the authority. I was hit by a, a bright light. Jesus spoke to me from up there. And I became a follower of Christ because of my experience with the living God. And so you have to listen to me. He was able to pull rank on everybody. Not only because of his Jewish background, but because of his rich experience with the living God. God the Father, God the Son. So the supernatural three ways, we've gone through that. Galatians 1.15, Acts 9, 1-19, please recall that. Because these are very, very important. So, the apostle, we talked about that through the will of God. Now, let's talk a little bit about the church of God. Doctrine of the church. We're going to comb through this quickly and see some important truths about the doctrine of the church. The doctrine of the church generally refers to the beliefs and teachings concerning the nature, purpose, and function of the Christian church. When we talk about the doctrine of the church, it has the idea of unity. The church is seen as a unified body of believers connected or conjoined through faith in Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Number three, community. This is the church. It's a community. Some places when you have tables like this and you have people seated apart from each other, you'll hear something like, G4, C10, bingo. This is a community of believers. We're not playing bingo. We're looking into God's word. We're looking at into doctrine. This is a community of believers. It emphasizes the importance of fellowship, worship, and mutual support among believers. Number four, <clears throat> mission. The church is called to fulfill the Great Commission, spreading the message of salvation and making disciples of all nations. Just like the Marine Corps has a mission and the Coast Guard has a mission, the church should also have a mission as well. You must know that mission in order to advance, in order to please your superior. Who's our superior? The Lord Jesus Christ. So we must be clear on the mission. We're to fulfill the great commission, spreading the message of salvation and making disciples of all nations. Does that mean we have to go across abroad? Go to Uganda, Pakistan? Are we supposed to do that? It has nothing to do with that. It just means making disciples of all people, all ethnicities, all people doesn't necessarily mean that we go abroad. Now, um, supporting missionaries is one way we can. But when it talks about the believer making disciples of all nations, our responsibility is to open our eyes and look for potential candidates that can be discipled. Discipled and made as disciples. So leadership, point number five. Different denominations have various structures of leadership. 
including pastors, elders, bishops, or other forms of authority. Each system, each denomination is uniquely different. Uh, Methodists, have, they have their own system. Roman Catholic has their own system. Uh, Lutheran have, has their own system of leadership. And doctrinal churches have their own leadership um, understanding based on the Word of God as it is clearly taught in the Bible. Number six, this is important. It's composed of flesh and blood, not brick and mortar. What's that mean? What do I mean with number six? It's not the building. You see this building? Beautiful as it is, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You are the sanctuary. There is no such thing as a sanctuary anymore. We're not coming here into the sanctuary. You are the sanctuary right here. So when we gather together, we are the church. Sometimes it's difficult to get that in our minds. The Bible calls us, the Holy Spirit is now the sanctuary in us. The moment you place your faith in him, you've been indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit, thus making you part of the church. The church goes into Springfield. The church goes into Fort Belvoir. So wherever you guys are, the church goes. So wherever we are, we're the church. So that's why Jesus said, by your love for one another, they will know that you are my, what? Disciples. So it's our love for one another. We go public. We don't want to stay behind closed doors. We can't let people know that we're disciples lest we are outside, which is why it's it's great when we can have things outdoors from time to time so that people would see the love that we have for one another. So that's part of the um, information with regards to the doctrine of the church. So some more things here worth bringing out. The local church is made up of believers who gather for worship, fellowship, teaching, and mutual support. Here are some verses that demonstrate that the local church is made up of believers in Christ. Now, a lot of this is um, of the same verse. I, I understand that I didn't for, It's not that I forgot. This is coming from the same verse. Acts 2.44, all of those people found in Acts 2.44 are called believers in Christ. Notice. All who believed were together and had all things in common. Number two, fellowship and community. Again, Acts, well now, Acts 2.42. They continued steadfastly in what? The apostles' doctrine and fellowship. In the breaking of bread and in prayers. One, two, believers in Christ. Fellowship and community. Number three and four. <clears throat> Teaching and learning. Acts 2.42. This is, um, again, this is, I, I said this in the first slide, uh, or point number one. But this repeats something here. Notice, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So, teaching and learning. In what? The apostles' doctrine. What's doctrine? Teaching. In simple terms, it's just teaching, right? Bible teaching, Bible doctrine. They continued steadfastly. They were focused and riveted 
in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. This is what the, the this is what the church ought to be doing if it's going to be consistent with what's spelled out in the Bible. Number four, it should have the component of worship, Acts 2.46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Please notice number four. They continuing, how often? Daily. Not once a week, not once a month. They did this daily with one accord. They were with one voice. They were focused and going in the same direction. They were consistently unified in one accord in the temple. And they were breaking bread from where? House to house. House to house. They would gather together from house to house. And here's what they did. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. They were just enjoying themselves as they were gathered together, as they were steadfast in the apostles' teaching. So there's this component of teaching, this component of doctrine, this component of fellowship, and even worship among their gathering when daily, with one accord, focused in the same direction, moving the same direction, breaking bread from house to house, and they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. They didn't have stress. They were relaxed. Why? Because they were consistent with God's <clears throat> with God's principles as set forth in Acts 2. Acts 2. That's Acts 2.42, Acts 2.46. So now, number five, what else did they do? Prayer. Again, Acts 2.42. They continued steadfastly in doctrine and in fellowship in the breaking of bread and in the very tail end of Acts 2.42. Let's not miss prayers. This is very important. They were consistently, steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. So that's how the early church operated. That's how they got together. That's what they did when they were out there in the houses. They were involved with doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, with simplicity, and in prayer. And then number six, we also have uh, mutual support and care. Acts 2, 44 through 45. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided among them among all as anyone had need. Did you know that was there in Acts 2, 44 to 45? Sometimes we forget this. We may have read it in the past. But I put this here because this is a part of the early church. Let me repeat it again, and this time I'll go slowly. Now... <clears throat> Now, all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. You see how the early church operated? 
There was no welfare. It was all church care. The church took care of their own. All who believed were together. So there's this community of believers who were gathered together following the doctrines of the apostles, praying, simplicity of heart, going from house to house eating. They were all together and had all things in common and they sold their belongings and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. See that? What's another way of saying this? People in the church, I'm not suggesting that we all sell our belongings, but the idea I want us to see as a church is that the church in the in, in the time of Christ, shortly after the time of Christ, they would gather together and they took care of each other. They took care of each other. So that even to the point where they would sell their belongings, their possessions, so that they can divide it among themselves as anyone who had need. So that if someone had need, let's say they lost their job, can we care for them? That seems to be the idea here. That's the sense that the church would pull together and take care of those who were in need. When one is hurting, we're all hurting. Isn't that the the principle of 1 Corinthians 12? If one part of the body hurts, we all hurt. If one rejoices, what happens to the rest of the body? We all rejoice. So you can see the importance of understanding the conjoining of each other and the support and care that comes from a community of believers. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods and divided among all as anyone had need. So that's six. Number seven, spiritual gifts in action. First Corinthians twelve seven says the following, but the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. So what's that saying? Everyone has a spiritual gift, and that gift is to be utilized in the community of believers. Not so that you can go out there and find a job because you have a spiritual gift in something. No, you take that spiritual gift and you bring it towards for the church, for the building edification of the local assembly. Leadership and oversight. This is the idea of... <clears throat> Therefore, taking heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, specifically the pastors, I would even say in some sense the deacons, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. That is number eight. A couple more here and then we'll dive into the next thing. Unity and diversity. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of what? One another. You see that? We are being many as just like one body in Christ and individually we are members of one another. We belong to each other. It's that conjoining I've been talking about during sanctification. You belong to me. I belong to you. We belong to each other. You belong to the person next to you. And so that doesn't mean you can beat them up. It just means that we take care of each other. That's according to Holy Writ. That's according to Scripture. See? 
This is important. Romans 12, 5. And number 10. Love and encouragement comes from Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of what? Of some. Some people have deviated. Some people have gone AWOL. Some people stopped going to church. But let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. We're supposed to encourage each other so that we can stir up the love in one another and good works. How can you get involved? How can I get involved? How can we get involved? Puppet show, Good News Club, all of these things come together as we start praying and thinking about these things. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting. What's another word for exhorting? Encourage. Encouraging one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. What's the day approaching mean? We all know Christ is coming soon. As such, we should be at our best. And the way that we could be at our best is to assemble together and not be uh, forsaking the assembling, as some have, but instead coming together, exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day is approaching. The day is getting closer. So let's roll up our sleeves and play ball. Let's give it our best. The day is approaching. Jesus Christ is coming. Some say the rapture is going to take place next year. We don't know when that's going to take place. But just the same, we must be at our best. Let's not uh, forsake the assembling of saints. So now we've looked at what an apostle is as contrasted with a disciple. We looked at how um, Paul was called through the will of God. We looked at through the will. And we're now going to look at sanctification in Christ. Okay, we're going to go through this again. And you'll understand why we went, I'm going to go over this, because I want you to see the nuance and why this makes a difference. Kind of like how there's three aspects of sanctification. There's the ultimate, there's the progressive, and then there is the positional. They're all different. They're not the same. So sanctification, um, look closely at this. Sanctification, what does it say? By God. There's the first one. Sanctification by God. Remember I said there's two sanctifications. There's our involvement and there's God's involvement. Remember that? Okay, this one is by God. As found in Hebrews 10.10. By that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Notice Ephesians 5, 25 to 42. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with what? The washing of water by the word. First Thessalonians says in 5, 23 to 24, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. 
these passages emphasize both our dedication to living holy lives for Christ and the transformative power of Christ's sacrifice in sanctifying believers. So the first one in number two is sanctification by God. Now, notice the next one. What's this one say? For God. By God, for God. What's the difference? By God is He sanctifies us. For God is when we sanctify ourselves. There's a difference. For God and by God. For example, in Romans 12, 1-2, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. We also find in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies, with your entire persons. Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, or the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So this is sanctification for God and the other one was called what? Sanctification by God. For God, by God. And you'll understand why I think this is important. So now we're going to look at some distinctions here. Sanctification by God. Please notice. The sanctification by God himself initiates sanctification. This is now the positional Sanctification. The Holy Spirit initiates the process of sanctification in the believer's life. Verse uh, Titus 3.5 Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and, re- and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Number two, He, sanctification by God, He transforms from within. The Holy Spirit works internally, transforming the believer's heart and mind. Whereas if we do the transformation, where is it seen? If sanctification comes by the believer, where is that going to be seen? Internally? Externally? Faith without works is... Dead. The world cannot see your faith. The world cannot see your justification. But the world, the world can see your faith in action as you apply doctrine. Okay? That's a, that's a passage that we should cover a little bit more later on. But here, since this is by God, please notice I'm just gonna, um, talk about and on, um, speak on number two, that this transforms from within. Sanctification is inward. It's internal. 
It's something that God the Holy Spirit does inside us. This is part of the sanctification position. Positional. This is called the positional sanctification because it transform, transforms from within. So let me go now to the next slide here. When it's um, the Holy Spirit doing the transformation, it produces fruit. The Holy Spirit produces fruit in the believer's life as evidence of sanctification. Notice I said evidence of sanctification, not evidence of justification. So when you are doing something as you are walking by means of the God, the Holy Spirit, and you apply the doctrine in your life, it shows that you're in step with God, the Holy Spirit. And your sanctification will will align with God's truth as far as what's seen in your life. So the fruit of the Spirit should manifest. It could manifest as found in Galatians 5, 22 to 23. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And the Holy Spirit, if it's sanctification by God, the Holy Spirit, or God, number four, he empowers for obedience. The Holy Spirit empowers believers to obey God's commands. Philippians 2.13 says the following, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. The Holy Spirit, again, if this is sanctification by God, provides guidance. The Holy Spirit guides the believers into truth and righteousness. John 16, 13 says the following. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. Number six, glorifies Christ. The Holy Spirit's work of sanctification glorifies Christ in the believer's life. We find this in John sixteen fourteen. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. John sixteen fourteen. So now... This is probably where we will close uh, right here. Um, let me just cover a few more things here. Now, the believer's involvement. Let's see how far we can get on this. The believer's involvement in sanctification. The verses that I just shown you is God's involvement with sanctification. Now I'd like to show you what the believer's life looks like in sanctification. How does sanctification look from the perspective of the believer setting himself or herself apart from the world. So there's an active participation. Believers are called to actively participate in the process of sanctification through obedience to God's commands. You heard me talk about this. The sanctification from the believer is listening and following the imperatives. Love one another as I have loved you. Forgive as I have forgiven So those are imperatives that are found in Scripture. As we apply that, we are now living in sanctification. 
based on our efforts in applying doctrine in our personal lives. So, for example, Romans 6.19, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for what? For holiness. Then we also have, in number two, renewing of the mind. Believers are instructed to renew their minds according to God's word. Romans 12.2, I know we saw this with the Holy Spirit, but this is repeated for emphasis. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Remember, this is what we were covering last week. We had this uh, blue box on the top, Doctrine of Sanctification. Let me just go as far as I can and then we'll stop because I wanted you to see uh, some things here that I think are important. I talked about defined sanctification. Defined is the ongoing process by which believers are set apart and transformed to, w- to become more like Christ in their thoughts, attitudes, and actions. It involves the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life empowering them to live in obedience to God's word. That's definition number one. So now notice this one. Sanctification as a positional reality. This is sanctification for God or sanctification by God. Is it one or two? Is it God? Who does the sanctification or is it for God or by God? Is it by us, for God, by us, or by God? By God. Sanctification as a positional reality. So let me say this again. The first box on the top, sanctification for God, is our efforts when we obey God's word. The sanctification second box is in the blue, is by God, he sets us apart. Okay? That's the progressive sanctification. The sanctification for God is when you are responsible for listening and obeying God's imperatives. So this is where we will stop and we will move through this next week because I have, uh, I'd like to go through the entire sanctification, what we covered last week, and hopefully this will make better sense And so let me just uh, see if I can tighten it up by closing with these words here. What I'm basically saying is sanctification is approached in two ways. When When a believer believes in Christ, we have been sanctified by God. That's called, that is called, that's the positional sanctification. So when we believe in Jesus Christ, we have been positionally sanctified. Now in life, as we come together in church, as we are home and we're with our families and it gets tense, all of a sudden we're not getting along with our spouse, the kids are making us upset, we get an opportunity to apply the doctrines that we learn from God's word and what? Apply it. That's that's sanctification for God. Does that make sense? 
we apply God's word, so sanctification, we set ourselves apart, and that's us applying God's um, directives, his word. That's the difference before uh, between the sanctification for God and by God. So the sanctification for God is progressive sanctification, which I'll elaborate more on next week. And that takes place over the life of the believer. That takes time. So it's important to know because when we go through our Christian lives, it's important for us to know what does it mean when we are sanctified for God and by God. Because if we blur the two, it's the same uh, problem we run into when we're not clear on phase one, phase two salvation. We blur justification with sanctification. Not we here, but this is what uh, Dwight Pentecost was saying. The problem in a lot of churches is that they're still confused between the two. And I think also we must be crystal clear not on just justification, sanctification, but between progressive and positional sanctification so that we can appreciate the differences and dial it in and live under his empowerment so that we can experience his power, the horsepower that comes from God, the Holy Spirit, so that we have power. Because look, you come here every Sunday. You may not even want to come here every Sunday. The reason why is because in phase two, phase two salvation, phase two sanctification, sometimes it's rough. You have things hitting you left and right. And so it's we must be clear on what it is that we're struggling with. Is it phase two salvation, phase two sanctification? And there's a nuance of distinction between the two, and we're not going to be able to dial it in next week completely. But I think once we understand that, that's part of our spiritual growth and maturity. Are you interested in growth and maturity? This is part of the growth and maturity. We must be clear on this. We can always talk about um, the tenses of salvation and the ten problem-solving devices, things that we already know, But no, I'd like us to know the nuances of of differences and distinctions between these truths because this, I believe, is going to help us in our phase two life. As I've said before, we spent a year and a half on phase two. And so now the the Corinthian church is going to help us with phase two in the context of a local church. So that's my aim. And so let's bow our heads and go to God in prayer. And I believe we have a closing song. Father, thank you, as always, for the opportunity to examine your word. And you have allowed us to assemble together in freedom because of what your son has accomplished on our behalf. We're not just people who are gathering together for a bingo game or anything like that. We are children of God. We are part of the royal family of God. We are proud of that fact because we all have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That makes us uniquely distinct and different from all people. That doesn't make that doesn't mean that we're better than other people. It just means that we're a part of your family. You have adopted us into your royal family. And as such, we don't take that lightly. And so we meet every week because we love thee. And so, Lord, I know that we all go through difficulties and challenges But as we study and examine your word, I pray, Lord, there's a a sense of empowerment and just a, a sense of just being energized 
and refreshed because it's your word that allows us to be refreshed and energized, not by some kind of um, drink that will give us energy, but because of your word that allows us to be empowered, allows us to grow uh, day by day as we draw from your word. So thank you, Father, for loving us, and we love you in return. We ask and pray these things through Christ's matchless name. Amen.